This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. A very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International <coughs> Book Festival. My name's Jenny Brown, I'm an agent based here in Edinburgh. And it's a real pleasure this evening to be introducing two immensely talented young writers. And they share not a little, not just a little in common. Evie Wilde grew up in Australia and London and graduated from the Creative Writing MA at Goldsmiths College with distinction. She lives in London where she runs a bookshop. She's the award-winning writer for her first novel, After the Fire, Still Small Voice, and that debut won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize, as well as being shortlisted for many other prizes. And she's recently been chosen as one of Granter's Best of Young British Novelists, that um, list of 20, 30. How many of you? 20 under 20 40. under 40 <laughs> that was announced uh, around about Easter time. Um, about her first novel, Sophie Ratcliffe in the Times Literary Supplement, uh, sorry, about her second novel, uh, Sophie Ratcliffe, as Times TLS said, one feels the influence of an early Ian McEwan or Ian Banks, but All the Birds Singing, her second novel, is also powerfully original, strongest in its handling of the human and animal worlds and the thin line between the two. The two. That new novel is brilliant and unsettling. All the birds singing is set in the heat and dust of Australia and in the wind and rain of an unnamed British island off the, uh, off the British coast. And it's earned, her, as I say, some outstanding reviews. Amy Sackville also studied creative writing at Goldsmiths College and she teaches at University of Kent. And her parents, I'm glad to say, are here and they live in Edinburgh. Uh, so a strong local connection. She also won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize for her first novel, Still Point, set partly in the frozen wilds of the North Pole. And her second novel is simply called Orkney. And in it, a curiously matched professor, a couple arrive on their honeymoon. He is an eminent literature professor. She is his pale, enigmatic star pupil. And one uh, reviewer commented, a haunting novel set on a beautifully described remote island in Orkney. It's like a folk ballad full of otherworldly emotion and strange impulses. That further ado, both writers are going to read to us, but let's just welcome them to the Edinburgh Book Festival. And Evie, will you, will you start yeah. us off? Sure. So my main character is called Jake, um, a female Jake and she's an Australian woman living with her dog on a sheep farm um, on an island and uh, something has been killing her sheep at night and it's been keeping her awake. With the night outside I close the curtains in the kitchen and put on the radio loud enough to drown out the skittering noises of leaves moving up the stone path. The only programme I could get was the soccer results. I listened to the names of places while I made sardines on toast. Wigan. What was Wigan like? I had a pretty strong sense of it just from the name, and it made me glad that I was not there. Sorry, Wigan. I fed a sardine to Dog and it made him sneeze. The sitting room was cold and so I ate under a blanket. I didn't look out the window at the dark, but I felt it there. Burnley 3, Middlesbrough, nil. When I could find no further reason for not being in bed, I turned the radio off and whistled tunelessly and loudly on my way up the stairs. 
On the landing, a feather fluttered in a draught. I brushed my teeth. I must have scraped over a mouth ulcer, because when I spat, there was an impressive amount of blood. I washed it away and blew my nose, and then rolled on an old t-shirt to sleep in. Dog collected himself at the foot of the bed, and we stared at each other a moment or two, before I checked the hammer under my pillow and turned off the light. I closed my eyes so that I wasn't staring into the dark, and I tried not even to take any notice of the sounds that felt unfamiliar, even though I'd heard them a million times before. A sheep's cough had always sounded just like a person's. A fox was being made love to somewhere in the woods, and her shrieks cut straight into my room. I fell asleep because I woke from a dream where I saw myself opening the bathroom door and finding all of my sheep in there looking silently back at me. There was no colour or light in the sky, so it wasn't past five. There was something sick in the air, like someone had lit a scented candle to mask a bad smell. The house was still. Dog stood by the closed door, looking at the space underneath, his hackles up and his legs straight and stiff his tail rigid, pointing down. And then one creak on the ceiling, like somebody walked there. I held my breath and listened past the blood thumping in my ears. It was quiet and I pulled the covers up under my chin. The sheets chafed loudly against themselves. Dog stayed fixed on the door. A small growl escaped him. My fingernails dug into my palms. On the wall behind me came a noise like somebody drawing a nail from the ceiling to the top of my bed's headboard and stopping there, one straight, smooth and slow line. Dog slunk over to the bed and growled long and low. I lay still, felt every muscle beat in time with my heart. My back throbbed. I had the feeling that I had bled onto the bed sheets, that if I moved my back would stick to the material and pull at my skin. I thought to myself, rats, there's rats in the walls, or mice, the smaller ones with the soft little brown bodies, that's all it is, or, or a bit of old timber releasing air or cracking, the temperature outside has dropped in the night, it is making it crack, and the mice are scurrying around, scratching about, or it is the raven's pipe doing its thing, the wind has changed direction. An underwater stillness, no wind or rain, not even a small owl just a thick blanket of silence. I shut my eyes and felt the mattress creak as Dog loped up onto it and weaved himself between my feet. The room settled and I counted heartbeats. There was a quiet crackle, then silence again. And then a sound like somebody driving a car into a tree, the crack and a slam that echoed, and then like hands slapping fast on the wall and I stood up on my bed and lowed like a bull clutching a pillow in front of me and holding the hammer up as if there was someone to hit it with. Dog snapped up the air around him like it was full of flies. In the quiet that followed, Dog started to howl. I lumped off the bed and hit the light switch. The, do the door was open now, flush with the wall, like someone had stood there blocking the doorway, observing. The corridor beyond it was dark and longer than I remembered it. Fuck you, I shouted into the corridor, breathing deep between each word. And around the words, I thought I could hear a whisper of someone speaking back to me. Dog stopped howling, let out a moan and ran into the darkness of the hallway. Nothing showed up at the end of the hall, just the window and outside the night. 
I took my jeans from the floor and pulled them on as I moved down the corridor to the stairway. The light switch at the top of the stairs was not where it should have been, so I ploughed into the dark and down to the kitchen where I found the light already on and Dog sitting under the table with drool coming out of him and puddling on the floor. We went out the door and got into the car, started the engine and I drove with my hands shaking against the steering wheel. I was going to drive straight into town, straight to the police station and bang on the door, but as my heart slowed down, so did my driving and I parked in the driveway of a field in sight of the lights of town, turned the engine off. Dog curled in the footwell of the passenger seat, passenger seat and shook, his eyes black and round. I rested my head on the steering wheel and breathed in and out until the still and the quiet became natural and Dog crawled from his footwell to let me rub his ears. We'll be okay, I said to him, and he looked at me. We've got options, we're smart. We watched the light draw through the sky and a barn owl on her final patrol who broke up the dawn, a lone swimmer in an empty sea. Thank you. Thank you, Evie. Hello. Um, so, as Jenny explained, this book is about uh, Richard, an academic who has just married his recently graduated student. Um, at this point in the book they've got to their island in Orkney and um, Richard's just gone out to the shops and the weather as it tends to there is, has changed. <clears throat> I emerged under a blackening sky, the air already condensing into sheer water, and as I came over the ridge to descend to our side of the island I saw a cloud over the sea, blood purple like an omen staining the water black and spreading through it to the shore as if the kraken had been slaughtered in my absence. The island to the west of ours had vanished in the air. I could not see her on the beach. Within ten yards the heavens, if such they are in these parts, had opened above me and there was barely a gap of air to breathe in through the downpour. I began to run, awkwardly, the bags heavy, wine clanking, the turnip bashing against my knee like a primitive football. I heard both bags in one hand so that I could cover my head with my precious newspaper and jogged home at a painful, limping gait, arriving soaked through, gulping for breath, my right shoulder and forearm and bicep on fire, one palm throbbing and tingling as the blood returned to the swollen white ridges left behind by the plastic handles, and the other stained by a handful of useless, inky pulp. I shook out the pages, the letters running irretrievably. I swiped the water from my wax jacket sleeves. I ruffled and shook my hair like a drenched dog. I called for her, my shout drowned by the rain on the roof, on the windows. The little house assailed from every possible angle. I looked into the bedroom, the kitchen as I passed, calling, calling until I came back to the sitting room and automatically looked for her out on the beach, but there wasn't a trace of her left on the wet sand, and I wondered for a moment if she'd been washed away after all before seeing her damp head peek around the back of my chair a thick wet cord of hair hanging. She was so balled up that no other part of her protruded. You're back, she said. Did you get caught in the rain? Yes, I said. Yes, I evidently did. I called for you, you didn't answer. It's wild out there, she said, ignoring me, and her eyes too were wild for a moment, her fingers gripping the wing of the chair, peering round the back of it like a goblin. In the dim light, she seemed somehow unearthly, touched with the hysteria of the wind, and I wondered how long she had stood out there, soaking to the skin. But then she said perfectly calmly, I'll make some tea, would you like some? As if she were nothing more than my ordinary young wife. Yes, I would, I said. Yes, please. Wait, I'll make it. 
One dark November day a year ago, she came into my seminar room drenched with the rain, and while the other students shook out their umbrellas and pulled off sodden hats and coats, she just took her seat, her clothes clinging as if she just walked out of the ocean, her hair long and waterlogged and droplets running down the ropes of it and dripped on her desk. She seemed on the point of dissolution, as if the whole of her was pouring away and yet quite unaware. She sneezed once and sniffed throughout the session. You'll catch your death, I nearly said, and felt compelled, even then, to fold her into my coat, to take her home and unpeel her and wrap her in blankets, but didn't. One of the other girls whispered something to her friend, and they sniggered, and I could have torn their throats out. She has no memory of this day. I'm not sure she noticed the rain at the time at all. She brought a towel from the bathroom, rubbing at her head and then mine, and sat by my feet and we sipped our tea and watched the sky changing, watched the rain slacken, and I could not stop myself asking, why did we come to this grey place? Are you sad, Richard, she said. It's not just grey. And pointing out to where the sea met the sky, which seemed for now to have slaked itself, her eyes following her own finger as it traced the fine gradations up to the apex or the limits of the window frame. See? Silver, pewter, old bronze, oyster shell. Graphite, dove's wing, goose down, I said. <coughs> Lead, cigar smoke, ash, sear, slate, cinereal. This especially pleased her. And on we went, this favourite diversion that already seems part of a half-forgotten past, like an old couple playing an old game. On we went, naming the grey until it seemed that a rainbow spectrum was a common, gaudy and frivolous thing next to this muted subtlety of shades. And then all at once a crack appeared in the cloud, the sun at one corner of it like a god's eye casting a piercing lancet across the sky, and then one after another rods of silver broke through to announce his presence. Like some awful, ruthless salvation, the sun burned the edge of the cloud bank magnesium white and shone brilliant on the still tender, cleansed world. The rock pools transformed into blinding mirrors and the sea so lately needled to fury was lulled and banded with whispering sim silver as it approached the shore and there was the terrible argent fire of the clouds lining after the storm and let's go out, she said, in the sunshine, as if extinction had not threatened only an hour before. Let's explore, she said. And I was so glad to be asked, to be required, that I couldn't refuse her. So we put on sweaters and hats and stepped out, both still a little damp within our clothes, a little shivery, emerging into the rawness of the new world and the air stripped clean. She put an arm through mine cosily and sighed. I'm glad we came here, she said. Thank you for seeing me safe over the sea. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Well, I'm just going to open up our questioning by just asking you both where the ideas, <clears throat> where do these novels come from? You've both had enormously successful first novels, and I'd love to hear just what kind of pressure that was. Was there a pressure um, in, in devising these and writing these second novels? Evie, do you want to start off? Well, I think there's um, initially there's a sort of you get a lot of people saying, well, you've written your first book, but will you write a second book? And now I'm finding that people are like, you've written two books, but can you write a third book? So <laughs> I, think, I think there's always going to be pressure um, when you're doing something that you're kind of putting out there like that. But um, I didn't feel like there was any particular time pressure, or, and I don't think I could have written it differently um, with less pressure, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. 
Um, I just think it was the it took the time it needed and and it is the book it is um, and the idea for it really uh, came out of writing it. I, I started with just an image of um, a woman and her dog on on the beach, um, which is sort of somewhere in the middle, I think. And then I worked outwards and and really it was it was supposed to be um, set purely in the UK but I sort of always seem to go back to Australia. Which is in your family, I think you've got dual citizenship haven't yes, you? Yes, I'm half Australian so it's sort of a lot of childhood memories come from Australia and, and also a lot of childhood memories come from the Isle of Wight which is sort of, it's an unnamed island in the UK where this is set but um, certain parts of the landscape for me are, are like the middle of the Isle of Wight but much more intense. <laughs> what about you, Amy? Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's, you, you write the books that you have to write, and I think you can't, you can't really write in response to an expectation. Um, I think I did find it quite difficult, and I think I did make a fairly sort of conscious decision to do something quite different um, and to write something sort of small and, and odd and <laughs> um, quite distinct from the first book um, and again coming out of place I think and coming out of, of that image of, of someone watching someone else on the beach and that kind of the gaze within the gaze if you like. What came first for you? Was it the, that idea of that watching or or was it the setting of, of the Arcadian Island which gave rise to that? Um, I think it probably went hand in hand. I think, um, I think that, that image was always there, if you see what I mean. So um, not just the, the watching, but what, what specifically she was watching and, and the idea of that, that particular sea and that particular sky. What does that island setting allow you to do? Um, well, it's the sort of classic Aristotelian kind of restriction of place and time, I suppose. Um, I, I, it's interesting that you say it was the Isle of Wight, but much more intense. So <laughs> similarly, this is, it, it's an unnamed Orkney. Uh, a lot of it is using details from Westray, which is where I went to stay, but I wanted to leave it unnamed and to allow myself that kind of freedom, but also the idea of everything being quite restricted and, and things, things start to sort of slide in terms of perception and, and reality. Um, I think you can kind of play around with that as a, as a metaphor, I suppose. I think there's something mm. interesting as well about islands being kind of prisons, you know, mm. like Bass Rock or, um, or Alcatraz or, yeah. you know, Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. It's sort of, you can get... Um, you can get stuck there mm. um, fairly easily. And it allows yeah. you to put your characters in kind of sharp relief to the local inhabitants who aren't <coughs> altogether friendly mm. towards Jake, certainly. Yeah, there's definitely a feeling um, of mainlanders and outsiders and Isle of Whiters or Islanders. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of it's sort of true of most small places, even if it's not an unfriendliness, it's a, it's a difference. It's a real kind of, you feel your own 
difference in a in a small place, I think, and you feel very conspicuous. Mm. Um, I don't know how you feel about writing in the first person. Your first book was also first person, is that right? Or have uh, I misremembered that? Sorry, it's I a while since it was. It was third person. It was third, okay. So I don't know how you felt about making that sort of shift into first person, but I feel like I want to put in some sort of disclaimer at the beginning that the way that Richard perceives the people, the islanders, is not necessarily mm-hmm. my response to the island. <laughs> and he's generally, he's quite a sort of snooty person about everybody, regardless of where they're from. Um, but we, we come to distrust Richard's mm. view of, of much of what he's experiencing. Yes, I think that's hopefully true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about a little bit about the obsession. Mm. Richard's obsession with this extraordinary young woman who mm. comes into his his seminar and he and develops this relationship mm. as 40 years mm-hmm. separate them in age yeah um so he he's working on a collection of of kind of fairy tales and myths as they were filtered through victorian and, and romantic writers um and i think the whole underpinning of the book really is about that kind of power dynamic who gets to tell the story who gets to impose that story on whom but also who who has the power and that the way that women are kind of represented in that period particularly is is there's this kind of they're either victims or they're kind of frighteningly powerful and I kind of wanted to play on which of those is she or perhaps she's neither and interestingly she is the one who tells us the stories, the folk mm. stories within the narrative. Yeah, yeah. I think I wanted to play with that kind of um, tension between the written and the oral throughout. So initially, I I thought that he was writing this book. He was actually keeping a written record, and then that just felt very kind of contrived and strange to do that. And I found it maybe more interesting if if we're just in his mind in some way. And so there's this tension between the fact that we're reading words on a page and and where that voice is coming from, if you like. But he's always working with texts and she comes in and tells these stories which are folk tales, they're oral narratives that are always being retold. And one of them is the Selkie story. Mm. Yes. Which is, is, has got very um, particular associations with Orkney and Shetland. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it's the, the quintessential Orcadian mm. narrative in a way. And so... Can you just tell us a little bit about the research? I know you went to an Orcadian island mm. in, the, in the research for this book. What other kind of background did you have to, uh, background research did you have to do? Um, well, lots of reading, really. Mm. So trying to, his period, although I have worked in, as an academic, I've, I'm, it's a different period to what I specialised in. So I did lots of reading around the narratives that he would be familiar with, which I kind of wanted to permeate his way of thinking, really. Um, but also the the folklore that she's engaging with and the culture that, that underpins the whole island. Um, and, of course, those, those particular stories that she tells. Mm. What about you, Evie, in terms of research? Um, the main thing I had to research was sheep, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I sort of went out of my way to try and avoid having sheep in the book because um, I'm not 
all that interested in them, if I'm honest. Um, but it just turned out that the places that Jake lived um, growing up in Australia and living in Australia and then where she was on the Isle of Wight, she was just, there was no getting away from the fact that she had to be involved with sheep. So, um, but I sort of, I find that I can get quite stuck with research. I can get really into it, even sheep research, because um, they can they can die of a lot of things, it turns <laughs> out. Um, so rather than sort of read a lot about sheep and and all that stuff before I start work, I, I wrote the sheep bits and then I went and stayed on a sheep farm and sort of sort of worked out what I'd made up and what was what was likely to to happen so to have sheep. you shorn? I've never shorn a sheep. I've watched it. But they're really big. <laughs> they're a lot bigger when you're close up. I've um I've turned a sheep over once but um, he was on his back and um, had eaten too much grass. Sometimes they blow up. And um, I was on the phone to my dad and he was saying, what you need to do is you need to get a pen knife. It's to slice open the belly and the gas will come out. And I just, I opted for rolling it down the hill instead. <laughs> um, but they're really, yeah, they're heavy and, and they have a funny look about them. <laughs> and a British sheep behave in a different way to Australian I sheep? I think so. It depends what you get in Australia. God, that's what <laughs> my head's full of. Um, in Australia, you get uh, the sort of carpet sheep that people have their carpets made from, which yeah. are the roamy, gamey kind of sheep that are in the kind of, um, in the deserty areas. So they're kind of thin and they've got fairly crappy wool. Um, and then you get the big fat merinos who are huge and sort of proud and beautiful and... Um, so I guess in, in England, um, the, the spaces are smaller. So, you know, while there is still wilderness, it's sort of, you don't have to herd sheep with helicopters over here <laughs> so much. <laughs> now you've got these dual narratives going on. One is Jake's past in Australia, which discover mm -hmm. what's led up to her being in England. Um, and in fact, th she's, she's a very isolated figure in both of them. Mm. Yeah, I wanted, um, as, a, as a sort of adolescent, she is a kind of awkward shape. Um, she doesn't, she's sort of an outsider. Um, she doesn't, she's quite naive, maybe. Um, and I kind of just wanted to, I wanted to follow a, a character who was not particularly feminine or, to begin with, particularly masculine, just like a a sort of solid person, um, which is quite, I don't know, it's quite hard to, I, f I found it hard to kind of think of a, um, a protagonist who isn't, you know, even if they appear to be kind of unattractive at first, um, you know, they might be dangerously thin or, or mm. they're curvaceous, mm. you know, something mm. like that. Um, so I just wanted a person who was just a big physical person um, rather than um, worrying about how attractive she was and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think that alone would um, make her quite a lonely person in a way, but deliberately. So it's sort of, it's about sort of being able to be a, a, a person as long as people aren't watching in a way. Um, so she's able to have um, 
a both non-sexual but also strangely physical relationship with um, Lloyd, this man who shows up, um, who's actually gay, um, but because no one's watching, there's no kind of outsider mm. eyes on them, they can uh, give each other some kind of comfort mm. because they're both emotionally wrecked and it's only the dog and the sheep watching, so it's sort of mm-hmm. not such a drama. And you chose to give her the name of Jake, mm-hmm. which deliberately... Yeah, I mean, to me, um, Jake is... I, I was really shocked that everyone I've met has been like, well, Jake is purely a man's mm-hmm. name, um, mainly because I know a very um, elegant 90-year-old lady called Jake who I sort of grew up with. Um, and I've since found, so I always thought it was a woman's name as well, I've since found out that's a nickname. Oh. Um, <laughs> so it's slightly, um, it's slightly by accident, but I like the idea that it was, um, it was probably a name that as a little girl you would get slightly ostracised mm. for because as a little girl the more syllables you have for your name the better girl you are, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like Isabella is, is a kind of very, you know popular girl mm. name and I think Jake is quite a Amelia of, is the most popular oh, is it? This, uh, that's a yeah. good one mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah it's um, there's a there's also a, a man later on called Claire um, and and that was you know men are called Claire um, especially in uh, the US I've sort mm. of come across quite a few male Claire's and I think an Australian man called Claire would have certain struggles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like a boy named Sue. But dog is simply dog. Dog is dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Names are very interesting in your mm. novel. We know about it's. We know the narrator is mm. Richard. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that there's a lot about language in this book, we heard a little bit about that in the reading, mm-hmm. we never know her name. No. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I suppose, because he is constantly imposing other names upon her. Mm. Um, I think that the epigra- one of the epigraphs in the book is, is taken from Ellen Tsitsu and uh, from her book Stigmata, mm. and she talks about the she, she describes the portrait of a story attacked from all sides that attacks itself and in the end gets away. And I sort of liked the idea of leaving these literal spaces in the book that she can kind of escape through, mm. if you like. Um, and I suppose that's one of them, that in, in some ways it could be read as he's withholding her name and giving her others, but then it could also be that that's something she gets to keep. And tell us about the word games that they keep playing, mm-hmm. because that's in a way, them ever bec- becoming ever more specific. Yes, I think the whole book is about that, that idea of trying to pin things down in language and trying to comprehend another person through words or, or the world through words. I think that's something I'm generally interested mm. in, something the still point is about as well. Um, but also I think it was something that I thought... I. I want it to be believable that they love each other. It's not, he hasn't sort of kidnapped her. She mm-hmm. is a, a grown-up person who has made a decision to marry him. And um, clearly one of the things that has brought them together in the first place is that they both love words. Mm. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about plot and structure 
I know you've said in the past that <laughs> you're not so interested in plot, but mm. you are very interested in structure and texture. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I think I'm interested in in form, really. Um, I'm, I think it's because I don't really read for plot. Um, like you know, I enjoy a story as much as anybody else, but. Mm. I think I'd, it's not something I take away from a book necessarily. I, I think I more remember the way the prose feels, um, partly because I have an absolutely appalling memory, so I can hopefully <laughs> reread or rewatch a film and enjoy it as if I'd never seen it before. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that's always how I've read is, is for for the for, for the texture more than for wanting to know what happens, if you like. How do you go about creating the texture of this book? Um, I think I wrote most of the words. It took, I think it took me as long to rework it as it did to write the first words on the page, if you like. So I was kind of interested in repetitive rhythms and almost sort of using the wave as a, a, mm. as a kind of formal template. Or Yes, think think. Um, the tide. Exactly, yeah. the tide and, and that idea of, of a, a rise and fall and of a sort of circular narrative as well because they're there for 12 days and every day has quite a similar pattern mm -hmm. to it. Um, so it was all about the kind of patterning and echoes and, um, and trying to work the tension which is sort of tied into the, the section I read you was about the weather and I was saying, well... <laughs> Earlier we were saying, what, what are we going to read? And I said, oh, I could read this bit about the weather, which accounts for about 75% of the book. But, <laughs> uh, but so the, the, that idea of the kind of pathetic fallacy, I suppose, mm. and, and that as, as the weather changes, so their relationship shifts and sort of try, trying to tie those two things together and work out that as a, as a structuring principle, I guess. It was complicated. Mm. <laughs> You've also got a complicated structure to yes. yours. Yeah, um, and again, it, it kind of, the words came first. I'd sort of written about 60,000 words of it, so about three quarters, and, um, and it was sort of felt like I had enough bulk, but it's just about telling the story in the best way possible. Um, and having written my first book, Herd's Dual Narrative, um, and you know, was a little bit kind of complicated at times. I'd sort of thought, with this one, I will just start at the beginning and finish at the end, but it just came, became very obvious that it needed to be folded um, in on itself to, to keep tension and, and also echoes, I think, are like the most satisfying thing mm. um, in a book. Um, just like little pinpricks that you might pick up on or you might not. Um, and every reader will read it slightly differently. That brings me to actually my next question, which was, I think the reader has to work quite hard, both of these novels. Mm. That's a good thing. <laughs> but, I, but I wonder how you, you manage that, both of you, in terms of what you give away, what you, what you hold back, um, and how conscious that is. Um, I don't know how how conscious it is for writing for a readership. I think um, I write the book that I I want to read and write. Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean? Um, and I really enjoy absences of things. I like the fact that um, you fill it with your own 
images and your own version of what happens. And I think that's, I think that's a really exciting thing about novels that everyone has a different novel when they've read the same one. They have different, everyone looks different, the landscape is different and it's all to do with your personal experience. Mm. And, I, and I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, d I also feel that life is quite complicated, turns out. And, um, and so I sort of never really want to tie everything up too much. I want to leave things open-ended. Um, and I quite often get asked, but you know, what actually happened at mm. the end? And it's like, well, I wrote it as succinctly as I could. Yeah. And um, it's not that there's a true ending and if you don't get the kind of joke, then you kind of lose out. It's just that different people take different things from it. And I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about, about novels. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I suppose for me, I'm sort of writing a book that is partly about the act of interpretation. So I didn't want to then close it down and say, well, so this is the correct interpretation mm -hmm. of this book. That would seem to sort of contradict everything that the book is trying to say. Um, I think readers should work hard. I like to work hard mm. when I read, um, and I don't think one should be apologetic about that. I, th I mean, that's one of the pleasures of reading, is, is using your brain, um, surely. <laughs> <laughs> and it, the, your ending is similarly open-ended. Yeah, a, a very, very much so. And, and interesting that you put it in that way, because I have ex exactly the same sort of feeling of, I don't want to know what I think really happened. I, all, all that I've written is the text that's there. Mm. Um, there, isn't a, there isn't a sort of correct solution that one can work out, and that's something I've really tried to avoid, mm. that there are multiple different possibilities. Now, we're going to have some time for questions mm. from the audience in a minute. We'll, we'll bring up the lights. But I just wanted to ask you both. You know, you're a university lecturer of creative writing. You run a bookshop. What's, it, what's your take on what's happening at the moment in the world of books and literature, and in particular for literary fiction? Uh, sorry, that's a rather big question. <laughs> but uh, I just feel really, you know, really both ends you're, you're mm. coming from, as well as being writers yourselves. Well, from a bookseller's point of view, I mean, even though, uh, you know, bookshops are closing and Amazon is nightmarish and all of this, um, I feel maybe completely stupidly positive about the whole thing. Um, I just think that people do love books. Mm. My bookshop has been open for eight years, still there. It still is sort of used, if not more than it ever was. Um, people are still excited. We've got a full room of yeah, people sure. coming to see two authors and I, yeah. I think yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think in the same way that people were worried about well, what impact will ebooks have, and actually it's made people think more about the physical object, and as well as reading electronically, it's not mutually exclusive. Mm. I think I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe Amazon in some ways has boosted. People really care about a good independent mm. bookshop yeah. now, um, and also I think I've found that. Um, Whereas you, you can buy a, a hardback book on Amazon for £6 or mm. something, um, people aren't really happy to give that as a gift. So come mm. Christmas, um, we sell full-priced hardbacks because mm. then when you give it as a gift, it's like an actual... It's not just something I 
took no trouble over it's not an algorithm yeah. Mm, yeah, kind of yeah. present it's Absolutely. just a yeah mm. no likewise I feel, I feel very excited as you say there's a full room you were saying there are 42 literary festivals in Scotland yes. so, I mean it's not people clearly love reading more than ever and I work with students every day who are producing really exciting work that I'm kind of I can't wait to see on the shelves in a few years time you know I, I yeah I'm generally pretty happy <laughs> let's have the lights up love to hear uh, your points to both of these writers about their novels or or about writing in general we've got a roving microphone and there's a question on the front here so if you just wait till the microphone comes to you uh, <coughs> I suppose it's for Amy uh, mainly in the uh, one of the one of the features of the, of the novel is complex competing literary traditions um, one being this romantic mm. male-centered Matthew Arnold mm -hmm. <laughs> issue of mm -hmm. men feeling sorry for themselves or men feeling as though they are the victim mm. of some kind of spell making and the other being this Scottish tradition mm. um, I hadn't thought that, as you said, that it's about orality as well, but but, but I, 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 that did strike me that you know that there was something quite liberating about the femininity of Selkie, mm -hmm. of a Selkie that's not in the English tradition, and just wanted to ask you about the Scottish tradition and, and was it was there a purpose multicultural contrast going on mm. there? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think it is, as you say, it's partly to do with the different modes of telling. So the idea of when she tells the um, Orcadian stories, she she changes the endings to some of them because she says, oh, well, in the, in the written down version and this happens, but I think that's a bit silly, so I thought I'd just leave it there. And that, the idea that the oral, the folktale tradition is malleable and can be retold and refigured um, but the same is true of the the stories that Richard is working with. You know, the the Little Mermaid story gets reiterated in different ways. Um, I agree, though, that the way the Little Mermaid ends, which is profoundly disturbing in comparison to the way that the Selkie myth ends, where she gets to go back into the sea and and her husband accepts that. He he sort of just says, "Oh well, that's I got some time with her." I think it's a really interesting contrast, definitely. Um, I didn't necessarily know those stories in the same detail when I started out. It was something I kind of found as I was doing research. That's the, the joy of doing research, is that it kind of opens up creative doors, I think. So the light's not very good, so if you put your hands straight up, then we'll be able to see you better. Nobody else at this point? Yes, thank you. There's one in the second row and then one bit further back. Hi, I just wanted to make a comment about uh, Evie's book. Um, I read it when I was in Orkney. We actually oh. met you. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> but, <laughs> and um, I read it in a kind of, um, well, a cottage. I was alone in a cottage reading this book. And it was so atmospheric. I just kept thinking any minute now a selkie is going to come up out the sea and take me away you know and this 
sort of the way you wrote it, the way <coughs> the mesmeric way mm. you wrote it, because I kept hearing the the words as you were writing them, mm. the shush of the waves, and I was sitting at my little open door listening to the shush <laughs> of the waves, and I just felt this fantastic uh, atmosphere that you created within the book. Um, it's really, that's just really a comment on oh, the way you've written, thank and you. that's I just lovely. want to thank you. It's tremendous. Really enjoyed it, and I'm your book too. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's a very lovely comment. There's a point, just sorry, a question just a little bit further back. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed um, Orkney very much, and I, I've, I've got more compliments than questions, really, but I'll try and um, think of the questions instead. Um, but um, the, um, I did try and push it um, on a, a girlfriend of mine, and she said, um, What about selkie men? And the, the selkie man who isn't there and is there, is the father. And I wondered mm -hmm. if you could talk about the, the shadowy figure of the father at all. Uh, maybe. He's <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, no, that's right. Um, the, there are the stories that she tells both concern women, but there are, there are mentions of the, both the Selkie man and the, the Finn, Finn man, um, which are the, the male equivalents of those two forms. But yes, absolutely. The, we were talking about possible interpretations and there is a possible reading that is folkloric that she is literally <laughs> a selkie if you like and that and that the father is that he draws that sort of comparison she tells him this story and she says the finn men they come onto the land and they kind of variously either rape or seduce the women depending on the version of the story you're reading and then they and they they follow the children on the land and then they go away but eventually they come back and she that's one of the thing the stories that she tells to richard is she says the, the finn men always come back for their own so there's that implication that that will happen and that the father is literally a finn man but as i say I, it's deliberately left very murky and uh sort of conjectural um, because I wouldn't like to say it's definitely that <laughs> but it could be <laughs> Yes, question here, thank you Well Jenny you've asked most of the questions I was going to ask oh. but, uh, <laughs> really just in terms of the, the readings you know, they, they were quite evocative and uh, I really wonder I wanted to ask both the authors to what extent do you think uh, or what percentage do you think your, your writing is down to research or imagination or anything else? <laughs> um, I suppose it's, uh, I, I always feel like with me, research comes last. Um, but, so I suppose it's imagination. I guess it's following characters and, and to an extent letting them do what they will do um, and sort of not trying to control them too much. Um, yeah, so I, I guess it's, it's imagination. I think research is, for me, it's, it's very tricky because I can get sort of, um, I can learn lots of interesting stuff and then want desperately to push it into a story um, just because I've learnt it and it feels important. And, um, and a lot of the time that can get in the way of the story, um, which sort of has to come first, I think. I think that, yeah, that is always a risk with doing research, isn't it? I, I think I, I do research quite early on, and as, it, as, I, as I write, I, I'm constantly kind of reading around. But I think it's more, it, 
I guess it depends on the type of research we're talking about. So it, it's more a kind of creative act, I suppose. It, it, there are things that kind of bounce off the research and feed into the creative process. So I wouldn't necessarily make the, the distinction between this is the imaginative creative bit and this is the research bit. I think they're, they're quite interleaved. How much, how much experience of your own you bring in as well, which is another dimension. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't know if you have this, people sort of say, so did you really do this as if, <laughs> as if all fiction has to be fundamentally autobiographical? But I have to say, reading your descriptions of sheep shearing, I thought, <laughs> did she work? Surely not. <laughs> She's too little. <laughs> she can't <have> done that. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. Um, so, I, yeah, I spent some time on Orkney in order to have that experience, but equally I am not a 60-year-old literature, male literature professor, so... Uh, <laughs> I know, like, there's a hand up towards the back, left-hand side. Thanks. This is a question for Evie. Um, in, the, in the half of all the birds singing that's um, <coughs> in, set in Australia, the timeline moves backwards so i was wondering did you did you write the events backwards or did you imagine them front ways around and then and then deliberately reverse it afterwards how did that work it was as complicated as it sounds um i i wrote them um front ways so um starting at her at her youngest and moving to her oldest and now how the book is written, it's, it's flipped over. So you get her most um, recent memory of being in Australia first, and it goes back to this event in her childhood. Um, and it, it became like a bit of a maths problem towards the end. Um, and yeah, it was a bit of a headache, because you kind of, I kind of always wanted to come back to the start of the chapter before it never makes any sense when I try and describe this but yeah it was really really difficult but I think I hope um, all kind of working towards making it a better story rather than just making it difficult. <laughs> Is that something you felt you could do having had the experience of writing your first novel? You know that technical problem? Well I think it, it more comes about with with the first novel I um, I started out writing about a character called Frank and I was, I didn't know where it was going to go, mm. I was writing about him, um, but then I found that to know him I had to know his parents and to know his parents I had to know his, you know, their parents and so it kind of, that's sort of how I work, mm. that things leach out and um, it becomes a bigger story in, the no in getting to know the characters. So. As I said, the, the, first, the second book was going to be set in the UK almost entirely, and then I was sort of like, well, how do you become mm. a, a farmer on your own um, as a woman um, at that age? And it, it just sort of takes you to interesting places, but I do always feel like I can't look at a character in isolation. I have to know what the background is and, and how their parents were made, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Anybody else would like to ask everything? Can I ask another? Yes. It's just the, the microphone. <laughs> when I read you, I, I read this novel first, uh, and then read your first novel, mm -hmm. and I was quite surprised by that because the first novel has a very tortured male mm -hmm. at its centre. Mm -hmm. 
and a, a male who appears to be extremely troubled by something in himself. But likewise, the second one is as a female narrative of a similar mm-hmm. kind. I don't know if that was correct, but I felt that was quite revolutionary in a sense. Mm-hmm. But that looking at some, you know, the female voice, looking mm-hmm. at its own inner darkness, which is usually a, th- a theme in male fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and was that consciously done? Um, I, I don't know how consciously... Um, I mean, as I say, when, when I sort of start work on a book it's um it's just about following a character and I mean I did want to I did want to look at a a female voice but as a as a kind of without any of the um sort of female things that I feel like can get in the way sometimes when you have a you know she's not looking for romance she's not kind of worried about will I have kids or not and that sort of thing um I just wanted to look at her as a kind of trunk of a person in a way, um, and but I don't. I didn't really set out to to do it. It just sort of happened. As the more that I got to know her, the more sort of troubled she was. And um, yeah, it's not me though. <laughs> Becoming the voice of a sixty-year-old literature professor. Um, I think so much of his world is is very familiar to me. I I work at a university, I have studied at various universities, Um, I work in the same field, a a different period but the same sort of field. Um, So in some ways, no, Uh, and I guess I'm sort of drawing on maybe other fictional precedents as as well, there's a bit of, probably a bit of Humbert Humbert in there. There's a kind of posturing, performative aspect to the voice that I think is is in line with a certain tradition, maybe. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting because often as I mean, I wrote my first book in a male voice mm. and, and, and you get a lot of people being like, how unusual that a young woman has written as a man mm-hmm. and there are far more tricky things to imagine than I mean <laughs> men are beautiful yeah, mysterious right. creatures yeah. but um but so you know I I have a dad Absolutely. and a brother and I know some of them so um yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely. can we just finish by if you could give us an idea about what you're writing now we'd just be intrigued to know um I have just um, submitted a graphic novel, actually. Um, so I have no idea what's going to happen with that. I, it's my first go at one. Um, I was working with an artist, um, and it's a bit of graphic memoir, really. And so, I don't know, it might go nowhere, but um, we'll see. Oh, intriguing. <laughs> How exciting. Um, well, yeah, speaking of research, that's what I'm doing at the moment, big time. Um, to the point that I think I'd, yeah, get, getting to that stage of getting bogged down and, and <laughs> distracted. But um, I'm actually going to Seville and Madrid in September for a few days to wander around and look at art and uh, think about something historical um, southern. And, uh, and southern, I know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I don't know if I can describe <laughs> warmth. <laughs> but, uh, yeah.
So that's, that's where it's going. <laughs> well, very good luck to both of you for your next projects. But if you haven't read Orkney, All the Birds Singing, can I just very heartily recommend them to you? They're both fabulous uh, novels. Evie and Amy will be signing in the big bookshop um, just outside this way as you go out. Um, so please don't let this be the end of the session. Come and meet mm -hmm. them afterwards. But let's just join in thanking them both very much indeed. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.